Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a blogger on personal finance here in New Zealand. And on this podcast, I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. You will hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their tips and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. And personal finance is indeed deeply personal. This week, I'm telling you all about Catherine and her husband, Luke, and brace yourselves for an interesting ride. Life was sailing along pretty well, all things considered, until more recently when they hit a few bumps in the road. But, c'est la vie, sometimes we think we are headed in one direction, but a fork in the road throws up a few other suggestions. All will be revealed shortly, but before I tell you all about them, I just have a quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because, for the first time, they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is KiwiWealth's digital investing platform. As part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi-owned and are committed to helping Kiwis live their best lives. Hatch can help you build your own personalised investment portfolios packed with the things you care about. It's smart to invest regularly for your future and now is as good a time as any to start. But knowledge is power, so kick off your investing journey with the Hatch Getting Started course. The Getting Started course can give you the confidence to invest when you're ready. Daily emails will teach you everything you need to know to buy your first shares on the US share markets and best of all, it's free. To learn more, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver start investing. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Catherine bright and early one Friday morning in early May. She is from Australia. She grew up and lived in Melbourne until she jumped the ditch to New Zealand in 2017. So it was very interesting to hear a little bit about her upbringing there and what prompted her move to New Zealand. I asked her if she had a sense of money growing up, which she said that she did. She knew as a kid that she got to do things that other children also did if their parents had a bit of money. They went skiing each winter, and although there was no international travel, she has seen all of Australia because her parents always took her and her brother on long camping trips, sometimes taking them out of school to do so. She also grew up in a nice house in a nice area, but hindsight was to tell her that this was due to the fact that when her parents first moved there, it was a bad house in a not-so-great suburb, but things had improved over the 30-plus years that they've lived there. Both her and her brother went to private schools, which for her meant a 45-minute train ride each way from the age of 11, so that's quite a commitment to her schooling from a young age. And it was here where she learned that although they had money to do fun things, it was clear that they didn't have the wealth that others had. However, her parents made a point to choose wisely just where they spent their money, and for them, schooling was worth it. Her parents both worked full-time, her mum is a teacher, then a public servant, and her dad worked in and around the IT profession. Although her parents were and are amazing, she does remember that they would sometimes disagree over their finances, and she knew that money did cause them stress on occasion. And when it came to advice around money, they didn't teach her anything to do with investing, but they taught her to make decisions carefully, to avoid making decisions on impulse, and to think carefully about what you want to spend your money on. At school, she was an extremely hard-working student and did very well and was one of those rare people who knew what she wanted to do when she left. 
She wanted to be a financial advisor and she also knew she only wanted to study for her finance degree at the University of Melbourne. She took a gap year immediately after finishing school where she went to the UK and worked and travelled, having a lot of fun and a good look around some of Europe while she was there. And then back at home, she did a three-year finance degree, living at home rent-free the entire time because her parents had said to her and her brother that they could live rent-free until such time as they got a full-time job. And because home was close enough to university, she gladly took this opportunity up. She did work part-time throughout her entire degree though, working about 16 hours a week as an office manager and this covered her personal expenses and the trips overseas to cheaper destinations like Southeast Asia that she loved to take with her friends. Her expenses were low, she never had a credit card and she really enjoyed this three years because she knew that once it was over she would settle into full-time work pretty quickly and life would change. Straight out of university she landed a job as a financial analyst in training to become a financial advisor, earning a graduate salary of $55,000 a year. She was super proud of this, plus they paid her quarterly bonuses, which totaled about another $12,000 a year. After two and a half years, she hopped to a bigger firm with the main driver being better opportunities and better pay of $65,000 a year plus bonuses. Catherine, like many of the women I've spoken to for these podcasts, knows her worth and is a good negotiator when it comes to her salary and after just six months she got her salary up to $75,000 a year. Her role was to support two financial advisors and she took every opportunity to upskill as fast as she could and show her benefit to the company. She then made one more move into the final position she took before moving to New Zealand. She negotiated a salary of $95,000 plus bonuses. Not bad for someone who at that point was just six short years out of university. I asked her what being part of the financial advisor industry was like. Varied was her answer, as each firm she worked for had different investment philosophies. The first one was a direct broking firm, so she got to see firsthand how hard they worked and the hours they put in to get the edge for their clients, regularly starting at 7am and working through to 11pm, running the company very much like a small investment bank. And this had her thinking, was it worth it for the dollar outcome for the client and was it worth it for her time? The second firm she called their way of investing as indexed with an edge, where they were semi-active traders. They did a huge amount of research and she started to see how a fund management firm actually worked. And the final job was working with individuals with ultra-high net worth. It was a female-led advice firm and the philosophy of the CEO was that the bulk of their investments were index-based. They did work with brokers to buy and sell individual shares, but that was considered fun money on the side for their clients, not for actually making money. The vast majority of it was index investment, and that was when Catherine really started to dig in and learn more about active versus passive managers and the difference between their investment approaches. And it was into these passive funds that she started to invest herself. By this point, she had met Luke, a Kiwi who had been living in Australia for 10 years by that stage. He had trained as a pilot in New Zealand and moved straight to Australia to take up his first role. Unfortunately for him, this was just as the GFC hit and his contract with Qantas was cancelled before he could even start work. So after a time, he began flying for Jetstar instead and was to stay with them for many years. When they met, he actually already had plans underway to move back to New Zealand 
He had also just gone into partnership with family back home and bought a small investment property, but his plans to move home were pretty quickly cancelled after he and Catherine realised that they had a future together. I asked her about Luke's upbringing with money and if it was different to hers. She said that his parents are no longer together, but she said that his mum does not handle money particularly well and his dad is very secretive when it comes to money. And perhaps partly because of this, her and Luke talk about money a lot and have done from early on in their relationship. It has always been a regular topic of conversation, given the fact that she was working in the financial industry, and because at that time she was beginning to work with her own financial advisor, and he agreed to see this advisor too. Catherine was debt-free by then and looking to invest, but Luke had some consumer debt and a student loan back in New Zealand, plus his part share in a house. Their financial advisor said that they needed to have it all out in the open if they were going to move towards shared goals. So that's what they did. It is critical that a couple be on the same page when it comes to money, otherwise they will work against each other instead of together. The financial advisor focused on him paying off his personal loans, which he did, while she helped Catherine invest and by the time they merged finances, they had similar investment balances. I was interested to know why a financial advisor would use a financial advisor themselves. She said that when it came to the boring stuff like organising insurance and making sure their super was sorted, she did not want to do that at home, having done it all day at work for everyone else. They use a fee-only advisor, meaning that they were not getting a kickback by recommending particular investments, and having a third party to rationalise their two completely separate financial situations, goals and experiences was really useful. Their advisor was able to show Luke that he was spending $10,000 more a year than his very high net salary, also known as spending more than you earn and living beyond your means, something he was completely unaware of and she helped him get on a good budgeting plan and have someone who was not his girlfriend keeping him accountable. In the last couple of years, they've mostly used her services to run decision points, like can they afford their house renovations and what compromises on other goals do they need to make in order to make things happen. She said that those discussions and having a third party give their thoughts are great in her opinion. Plus, she said to her credit, their financial advisor has also been prompting them to reconsider their debt levels for the past year, something I'll talk about shortly. Today they live in Auckland and Catherine is now 30 years old and her husband Luke is 36 and their financial advisor really must have cracked the whip because combined they have about 150000 Australian dollars invested in their own superannuation schemes back in Aussie. She said of the Australian scheme the system works very well and now that they both live and work in New Zealand and are members of KiwiSaver over here they would not consider bringing those funds over to New Zealand to be put into their KiwiSaver schemes. They have instead left it invested in a set and forget 100% diversified Vanguard high growth fund, which is also cheap to use with very low fees, so she sees no harm in leaving it there. Here in New Zealand, Luke has his KiwiSaver with ASB and a super conservative default fund, which is not the best plan, a terrible plan actually, and one which they have been meaning to change, she pointed out. Hers is with Simplicity Growth. One of the regular discussions as a couple is that they remind each other to be transparent and be completely open. There is the odd argument, but she said at least they have any and all discussions about money and goals. It is too much responsibility and not fair to put it all on her shoulders to handle everything just because of her training, and by sharing all the decisions it makes them both responsible for their money. 
Luke has always earned more and he sees it as his responsibility to bring in the income, but they are trying to break this down because they both contribute in different ways and things may not always be that way in regards to income. They have shared goals too, with both of them wanting to have children at some point and eventually have a property with space for family to stay for extended periods. They would like to have many pets and they joke that a landing strip would be ideal, pointing out that when you are dreaming, you can dream big. They would also like a small city base, a unit in Auckland to come and go from. There is no spreadsheet tracking their progress towards these goals, just a general feeling of making sure their shorter term actions are keeping that longer term vision in mind. Now I mentioned earlier that he had a student loan. She said that once he finished his training and left New Zealand, he genuinely pretended that it didn't exist, and when he finally moved back to New Zealand, the balance was sitting at about $140,000, as it incurred interest while he was away. He now pays about $1,200 a month off it, and the balance today sits at about $100,000. It is something that they talk about because, despite what people say about the banks not taking too much notice of student debt, that's just not true, and it did affect their lending capacity when it came time to look at buying a house back in New Zealand. A student loan is paid back at the rate of 12% of your pay, so that means your take-home pay is a lot smaller, and this is what a bank is basing your lending on. But let's jump back to when they got together in Australia. They began to live a great life together in Melbourne. He was earning about $200,000 a year, she was earning about 100000 They had fantastic cash flow, good savings, and were each investing in their own portfolios and superannuation schemes. But they had very high expenses too when it came to health, fitness, sport, lots of travel and of course entertainment and it sounds like there was a large dose of lifestyle creep going on. They took it for granted that Luke could ramp up his work hours if he wanted and they could easily have more money coming in for spending if and when required. In 2016 when she was 26 they decided that they wanted to buy a house together with the intention of it being a rental property. So they set about getting the money together for a deposit as quickly as possible. She was fortunate enough to receive an inheritance of $30,000 when her grandmother passed away, plus she had her own savings of $25,000, plus by now Luke had some savings and a very good cash flow due to his income. But it was at this point that the concept of what a 20% deposit actually meant hit home. She realised they would need about $150,000. Also, Australia has stamp duty, which is a percentage of the property price, and you have to pay this in cash, you can't get lending for it. So it was pretty disheartening for them. Plus, I think it's an indication of how a young couple buys a house. Instead of spending years preparing for this moment by setting aside a large chunk of a large salary to build up a large deposit, a decision is often quite quickly made to get into the housing market. So it's often a bit of a lolly scramble to bring the deposit together. And I'm speaking from experience here when I recall that one month Johnny and I were renting, the next we were looking for a home, having not really considered how to get the deposit together. So they readjusted their expectations and realised they could only afford a $450,000 house in Melbourne, and that amount actually bought you very little, even though they were looking 20 kilometres out of the Melbourne CBD in the northwestern suburbs. So her parents stepped in and offered them a family loan of $30,000 legally signed up with market rate interest. They also used a buyer's advocate to find their first house, for which they paid a flat fee of $10,000. They were looking for an investment property because they knew at some point they would be moving to New Zealand, 
and they fully recognized that they didn't know this stuff, so they knew they needed help to find the right house in the right area. It was just too big a commitment to make a mistake, and they were both too busy at work to look. And I could see how this advocate could be worth the money they charged, as they sourced all the properties, did a full analysis on each property for them, and even went to auctions and bid for them, which she said was extremely beneficial, as they avoided getting sucked into overbidding for a property. And they found a property within about three months and purchased it for 475000 They were both living with her parents at this time and paying rent by now, I should add, and their intention was to rent their own property out immediately, but they had a couple of small renovations to do first. And as is always the case, these pretty quickly turned into larger renovations, which was obviously a concern. In essence, they had purchased two houses. There was a three-bedroom main house at the front with a standalone bungalow at the back, and if they could tenant them separately, they could increase the rent. So up went a fence to make the properties feel separate, and in went two distinct and separate access points to the houses. They spent $35,000 over both properties, and she knows this because she kept detailed spreadsheets throughout the process to stop them overspending, uh, putting in a new kitchen, new bathroom, and many other upgrades. And with the help of her dad, they did whatever they could themselves, but it meant for the first year they remained without tenants while they renovated. All the while there were tax nuances, not worth going into for this podcast, but suffice to say that the stamp duty they paid was a far lower amount of $23,000. Now soon after this, the plans to move to New Zealand began to firm up when Luke secured a job with Air New Zealand. They thought it would be cheaper to live in New Zealand, which she said in hindsight was a gross understatement, so they saved up about $20,000 to cover moving costs to Auckland and setting up once there. Before leaving Australia, they also refinanced their rental property so that they could get the equity that had started to build up out of it. And they had it sitting there available to spend because they knew that once they moved, they would be prohibited from releasing this equity. With Luke, he knew he had a job, but he didn't know the start date. So because she had finished up with the company she was working at as a financial advisor and didn't have a new role, she decided to move first, moving to a flat they had found in Auckland in March 2017. But his transfer happened more slowly than they anticipated, so for the remainder of that year more or less, he lived and worked in Australia while she was over here. It was an odd arrangement, but just the way it had to be done. Once over here, an Australian financial advisor she knew offered her a part-time role here in New Zealand, and they were more than happy for her to work remotely. She was not sure if she wanted to go through retraining to be a financial advisor here in New Zealand, so she settled into this role, which was perfect as it gave her free time to look for other opportunities, and in July 2019 she settled into her current role working for a New Zealand fund manager, earning about $85,000 a year. There was a lot of going back and forth between the two countries whilst they juggled their job changes. He had a lot of annual leave, so they also took some great trips overseas together during this time. And then finally, in January 2018, he moved home to New Zealand, taking an almost 50% pay cut in the process, due in part to now working fewer hours, bringing their combined incomes down quite a bit. Like I mentioned before, although they thought living here would be cheaper than Australia, That was not the case, and although they moved here with a large cash cushion, an emergency fund and savings, she said their downfall in the first year of moving back was that they let a few things slide and didn't quite adjust their lifestyle to fit in with their reduced income and the costs of living here, and she said that in hindsight, they maintained a lifestyle they didn't really need to. 
They had been renting a home in Auckland for a year when the landlord called and said that the house was going on the market. She was in her 70s, lived in Auckland, and this was her only retirement asset outside of her own home. And her accountant had told her that she was house rich and cash poor, a relatively common problem, and needed to cash up. They could have just moved to another rental property, but by now they had fallen in love with the area, were feeling flush with cash, plus in the two and a half years since they bought their property in Melbourne, the value had gone from $475,000 up to $620,000, and they knew that they had that equity available to use here. So pretty instantly, they got off the phone from the landlord, got out the calculator and thought, I think we can make this work. Because of their unusual work situation at the time of purchase, where she was still working for an Australian company and therefore earning money in her Australian bank account and the money from their house was also in Australia, they went to a mortgage broker to help them get the lending in place here in New Zealand. She said they scraped a 20% house deposit together of $163,000 using all the money they could find, which included about $30,000 in cash, their entire emergency fund, equity from their Australian house, plus $20,000 from Luke's family to just get them over the line. They negotiated with the owner and completed a private sale to the tune of $814,000, taking on another mortgage of about $650,000. Their bank advised them to use a principal and interest loan and fix it for a year until such time as their income settled down and she could secure a New Zealand-based paid position which she did, and he moved out of his training salary at Air New Zealand and onto his full-time wage. Currently, all up, their total debt over the three properties now sits at a whopping $1.7 million against $2.1 million of property, with the majority of their debt fixed for 18 months and a small amount of about $100,000 fixed for 12 months. Their thought was, if they decided to sell their Australian property, that they can pay a lump sum off this when its term expires. They pay interest and principal on their debt with a fixed payment of $1,484 a fortnight plus an extra payment of $250 per month. The New Zealand investment property payment, that's the house Luke purchased with his family early on in his and Catherine's relationship, is an additional $744 a month which is mostly covered by the rent they receive but they have to top this up by $120 each month. Now, to be completely honest, when I interview people, I'm always a little confused by the structure of their debts and by their repayment plans. It's always complicated. But all up, by my rough calculation, that's a shed load of mortgage at $1.7 million with a mortgage payment of about $1,700 a fortnight, which feels like a huge chunk out of any salary, but a drop in the ocean when it comes to paying down debt, if I'm perfectly honest. Personally, I was staggered at this level of debt, and I would be lying if I said that I was not just a little frightened that a 30 and a 36-year-old had a housing debt of this size. So I had to ask, what exactly was Catherine's view on debt versus saving that made her okay with this? Because she did just talk about this all so calmly. She said, I am, broadly speaking, comfortable with debt. Right now, she said, our debt is too high, but we are trying to rationalise by selling two properties within the next year their Australian house and the investment property they own with Luke's family members, and doing this will take their debt down to about $970,000, at which point she said, I am wholly comfortable to use all of our surplus to invest rather than pay off extra debt. Debt reduction above their principal and interest repayments has not been a focus for them up till this point, 
and becoming debt-free is not really their goal. Right now, their goal is moving money from fixed assets or their property into more liquid assets like shares, which also has the side effect of reducing debt. She said her greatest financial flop has to do with property, and it was at one point fixing a loan for five years at far too high an interest rate, and Luke buying a property with two other family members, and she openly admitted that they have made no money out of this investment. But her biggest financial triumph also has to do with property, and she felt that by putting themselves in a position through hard work and smart choices to make the most of opportunities when they arise is a strength, being able to jump at buying their current home from their landlord because they had been hustling for a year and a half prior to this mean they now live in a place that has given them so much enjoyment and living in it during COVID-19 and being surrounded by wonderful neighbours and community has just confirmed that they are in the right place for them. After getting the lending in place to buy their current home, there was no money available for renovations when they first purchased it. They could wait. And they adjusted their lifestyle so they could afford these new debt repayments. Their downfall was that because they had sunk every single available dollar they had into securing the property, they had also used all of their emergency fund, so there was no money available to fight any financial fire. And you can be sure that as soon as you do structure your money this way, an emergency will be sure to come along. Soon after Luke moved here full-time, they took a new kitten into their family. Their kitten, which they were completely attached to, had gotten sick and the surgery to fix the issue was $6,000. They didn't have pet insurance, this was their baby, and it was a fixable illness. So they just had to keep saying yes to each procedure as they could not cope with the alternative, which was euthanasia. They were at the vet when, very politely, the receptionist offered them a cue card credit application. It was the only way they could afford it because they had no money set aside anymore so they put the entire cost on an interest-free cue card for 12 months and accepted that they would deal with the issue later. And I thought this was interesting because except for travel, she had never used a credit card much before, and any time she had used it, she was always super diligent about paying it off each month, and she never paid a cent in interest. Having this well-meaning receptionist slide her a credit card application felt to me like how a drug dealer might get a new client hooked. Just try this, it will solve all your problems, in the short term at least. But to be fair to the receptionist at the vet clinic though, she just wanted the bill paid in full before these two and their kitty cat walked out the door. So I asked her how much pressure she was put under by the lender to keep using the card once she had it. And she said heaps. With constant emails coming into her inbox inviting her to spend, it means that the temptation and convenience is very much there. They did pay off that $6,000 vet bill that they had put on their cue card, but once that was done, they did start to use it for other things when prior to having this card, they would have paid cash. For example, they were saving up so they could pay cash for new curtains when cue card sent them an email saying, if you put a payment on your card by Sunday night, you will get six months interest-free. So, boom, she used that instead. And this is despite her having created a sound savings plan to pay cash for the curtains. Now some will hear this and think, of course you use their money and not yours. After all, it is interest free. But my take on that is that you fall into the trap of always being in arrears of the things you have bought. With debt in any form, one thing inevitably leads to another. First the student loan, then some consumer debt, then the cat, then the curtains, then a huge mortgage. What next? 
Access to credit becomes your first port of call instead of saving up and paying cash, and that is how people start to develop pretty complicated financial situations for themselves. Catherine said that this card needs to go to cut it up and close the account and send all future emails to spam. That way, all temptation will be removed. Just four months after saving their kitten, Luke was to temporarily lose his medical at work, meaning that he could not fly until the medical issue was resolved. They thought they'd be fine until they realised that in the course of moving countries, they had inadvertently cancelled a particular insurance that they had for Luke in case this scenario occurred. It was a paperwork glitch that meant his pay stopped after a month and he was to be off for three months in total. They have total permanent disability and trauma cover, income protection, house and contents and car insurance. They just didn't have the short-term one that is unique to the airline industry. So he was not working and they had no cash. However, her work was busy and they were understanding of their situation. So she did manage to increase her hours to full-time and bump up her take-home pay. And just to prove that things go in threes, in the same week that he got sick, their car blew up. It literally died as they were driving on the motorway, the stuff that bad dreams are made of, a true horror scenario, she said. And buying a new car was totally outside the realm of their budget. So they actually went carless for 12 months, made easy by the fact that they live on a bus route. And in fact, they have only just recently bought a replacement car. They had been through an extremely busy period where between the months of March and December 2018, Luke joined her in New Zealand and started work for a new airline. They used every dollar they had to buy a house. They had a huge vet bill, loss of income and a blown up car. And she went from part time to full time. That's a lot of life going on. Finally, after Luke's first year, he got a pay rise and things started to even out for them both. So was there a lesson in this, I asked. She said, you think you are on a good thing, but at any point in time, something can come along. They had used their emergency fund on the house deposit because they thought they would reinstate it quickly, which they struggled to do. And it is an excellent example of exactly why you don't use your emergency fund when it's not an emergency. So with the drama of 2018 behind them, they entered 2019. They were now on top of their mortgage payments. They were paying down his student loan. They were saving into their investments, contributing to their superannuation schemes. They had cash flow and they had paid off the credit card. Now felt like the right time to get married. So they set a date for mid-2019 and hurriedly set about saving up $30,000 cash to pay for the wedding, which was a stretch goal for sure. On top of this, they cash flowed a honeymoon that took them to the Rugby World Cup in Japan in 2019. And Luke and a few of his friends had been saving into a bank account for four long years leading up to the Rugby World Cup, with the view being that there would be enough to pay for this component of their trip. So their tickets were all covered and all up, including the money already saved for the Rugby World Cup, they spent a further $15,000 on their honeymoon. She said of that time that they saved really hard but that the money came straight into their bank account and straight back out again. But still, I greatly admired their discipline to save hard and pay cash for it all, and it felt that they were both on an even keel again. Both of them had started investing separately outside of their superannuation scheme when they worked with their financial advisor in Australia, and they were investing for goals that were more than five years away, and they knew that investing for the long term somewhere other than a bank would give them far better returns. Both were initially with Vanguard in a diversified multi-mixed balance fund. She said it's a low fee, just 0.29% in Australia, 
and they set about regularly contributing to that. They have paused it from time to time, like when they were aggressively saving for their wedding, and at other times they have ramped it back up. At the point they decided to move to New Zealand, they made the decision to put their portfolio in higher growth, and combined at that time, they had about $40,000 invested. They felt this was the start of their for their future bucket, not for a house, and as of late 2019, this investment was valued at around $55,000 and was just ticking along. Catherine had mentioned that her own parents had sunk a lot of money into their own house using their superannuation funds once they had access to them to do so, and she made the comment that this is all well and good, but you can't carve off a corner of the house if you want to take a holiday. Any equity in a house is locked in until you sell it, and a house is a very illiquid asset indeed. She also made the comment that the only reason they bought the house they now have in Auckland is because the seller had no cash, all of her money was locked into a house, and to get it out, she had to sell it. So although Catherine and Luke currently have a very large sum of money now tied up in three properties and are carrying a very high level of debt, they do have the bones of a better and more diversified financial structure with the end goal being to have a cash buffer, an emergency fund, a house, superannuation and share market investments. They are by no means there yet and are still extremely heavily weighted in property and after chatting I can see that their current situation is somewhat precarious but their end goal is sound and they will hopefully get there in time. When they got to the end of 2019 they took stock of their situation. She was in full-time work that she was loving Luke had settled into his job and their cash flow was strong. All of the various components that made up their life were ticking along and they were managing well. They had planned for 2020 to be the year of saving and investing, with the short-term view being to carry out some house renovations on the place they live in and also to begin thinking about saving up for a future maternity leave in the next couple of years. So based on this, they decided to try to sell their house in Australia and it went on the market at Christmas time. Now I was surprised at this given that they had intended this to be a rental property and had done their calculations which were based on them holding onto this property for the long term. They had also renovated it with this in mind but it was actually the fact that Australia has made a significant tax change for how they treat property for non-tax residents that has triggered the selling and they thought let's just put it on the market and see what happens. It passed in at auction and went to negotiation. They had a signed contract but the buyer pulled out within their three-day cooling-off period. They received another offer that they turned down and fast forward to March and COVID-19 hits and this has Catherine thinking, holy shit, maybe we should have taken that lower offer and we should absolutely sell the house before house prices drop. Now Catherine loves her spreadsheets and she has plotted out a variety of scenarios and she said that with each coronavirus update, that things were just looking worse and worse, but she kept planning for new worst-case scenarios in her spreadsheet, but then a new thing would crop up. They got to the point of thinking, holy moly, you have to take a step back and just pause. They felt they were making decisions based out of fear, and they didn't want to do that. After all, that was the one piece of advice her parents offered her all those years ago. So her parents put their hands up and have said, we don't want you to panic and sell an asset. If you are doing a fire sale, we want to know as we will support you so you don't have to do that, which is a huge lifeline. So very recently, they have restructured the loan in Australia and her parents went guarantor on the principal and interest loan. 
They received another offer on their house, only to have that guy lose his job due to COVID-19. Then, two days later, one of their tenants lost their job, putting their ability to pay rent in jeopardy, as they were a single-income family with a small baby. And as we all know, COVID-19 has had wide-reaching implications for each and every citizen, and Catherine was feeling this firsthand. By this point, they also thought that Luke's job here might pause as airlines stopped flying. And also at this point, they were both living with friends while they carried out renovations on their Auckland house. And when our government gave us a 48-hour warning of a level 4 lockdown, they frantically moved back into their newly renovated, but nowhere near finished, home. And things continued to worsen, and they knew that it was likely that Luke would be made redundant, and this happened right at the end of April. They have had the last four weeks of it, she said. It has been a truly tumultuous time, she said, and I honestly didn't know when I rang her up to have a chat on that Friday morning in early May that this was a situation that they were facing. So where to from here? Well, a lot has happened as they move to quickly analyse the situation and plan their route ahead with calm and cool heads. Luke has been given a long notice period. He will be paid for the next three and a half months and they are both running the numbers and working on putting a plan in place to tackle the coming months. He can keep his options open with Air New Zealand, so they won't take the redundancy that is being offered. They have the option to take this at a later date, if they want to, and by doing it this way, he is keeping his foot in the door for when the airline industry begins to rebuild again and needs more pilots. Their New Zealand bank has given them an interest rate reduction on their mortgage, and their Australian house is still on the market, and they have had another offer, but it's $40,000 below another offer that they rejected and would mean that they would come out with about 120000 Australian from the deal. And she is struggling with this, so they are running the calculations for riding it out and holding onto the property to prevent a fire sale at a loss, while hoping that the house price holds up. But then, of course, they have the added issue of hoping that their tenant finds another job fast, or they'll have to find a new tenant entirely. Their initial thought with the money freed up by selling that property was that they would put it into their Australian share investments, but now they are not so sure and she is feeling the need to reset her goals for 2020. After all, it was meant to be the year of making money. She said that this time in her life is actually a real grieving process because of all the things she thought they would achieve, but no longer can. And I could hear it in her voice when we spoke that her mind was frantically ticking over to find some way to get some equilibrium back in their lives and some context with this new normal. And remarkably, she is managing to do this. She is an optimist at heart, and that is the battle half won in my view. Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. He also said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Now, despite all the balls they are juggling, she is remarkably calm and very observant of what is going on around her and how they can position themselves to get through this okay. I took the opportunity to ask her if I was to give her $10,000 right now, what would she do with it? She said once and for all, she would clear the small balance remaining on the credit card and put the rest into their emergency fund. But she said if I had asked her this just three short months ago, she would have put the whole lot into their share portfolio. Times have changed, however, therefore, so has her plan. They are controlling what they have control over and are focusing and thinking about what expenses they can cut out that are just not important now 
and what goals they can still achieve. And the goals are no longer monetary ones, but are simple yet achievable ones instead. They want to have their nephews over for a sleepover more often. They want to go fishing with their neighbour when lockdown ends because they always offer, but they have yet to say yes. They want to have a dinner party with more than four people now that they have a living room and a table that holds eight. Instead of visiting friends in Australia as they have always done, they want to ask them to come and stay with them in their Auckland house instead and enjoy a beer at home with them. And they will stay home now to eat and drink instead of always going out to a bar or a restaurant as they did up until COVID-19 hit. They have created a lovely home, she said. Seems a shame not to invite others over to enjoy it. Up until now, they were paying themselves each an allowance of spending money. That's now stopped. Their financial advisor in Australia has been put on hold as well, as it's all about cutting any expense that is not totally, absolutely necessary. They had lent some money to a family member and they have begun to pay it back, so this will be a welcome and regular payment into their account. Luke has already started to pick up a little bit of work, so he'll double down on his efforts here and the job hunt will begin in earnest. And I neglected to ask, but I suspect that any additional payments to a student loan have also stopped at this time as well. And payments into their investment accounts in Australia have also stopped for now. Now, dialing into all of these things has focused their attention fully on their income and expenditure. And with these changes, this will get them on a break even using her salary alone. In the past, if ever they have needed a quick cash injection, Luke would just work a bit more, but that is now no longer an option so the only thing they can do is cut back while he looks for work. And while we didn't really get the opportunity to talk about Luke in detail, it must be terribly hard emotionally to lose such a career so suddenly, having spent years of training to be in that role. There must be a real feeling of grief for what is suddenly lost. So together they have a journey ahead to help him pivot into a new career to tide him over until he can get back to being a pilot, if indeed That's what he still wants to do at the end of all this. After all, out of adversity comes opportunity that you may have never considered, so who knows what the future holds. The fact that they have such a strong marriage is going to be a true blessing in helping them get through this. There is renewed focus on their financial habits, the things that they just automatically do with their money, like they have money transfers into various accounts on the day they receive their pay, so everything is allocated immediately. They track their budget on a spreadsheet that informs those money transfers and they check in on this fairly regularly, even more so at the moment, just to see how they're going. And they have everything on direct debit where possible. So they only leave the house with their bank cards which are attached to their fund money. And that fund money budget has been slashed as well at the moment. And that means, she said, that extra spending at random is nigh on impossible. Catherine's elevator pitch or her sentence that would sum up her approach to money is know the detail to inform your decisions but don't get analysis paralysis because you've got to live your life too and have some fun. Something that must be a little harder to live by at the moment. Now over in Australia their government has given everyone the opportunity to pull a total of $20,000 from their superannuation fund but this is something she has said a firm no to. By doing this, they will just be shortchanging themselves in their retirement because that $20,000 left invested will be worth far more to them in retirement than it is right now. In her case, probably about $80,000 more. So it's short-sighted thinking to take it out now. 
Obviously, they also have some money invested in Australia in Vanguard funds, which is accessible. But cashing that out is also off the table because this was always set up as a very long-term investment and there are a lot of other levers she can pull before having to reach for this. Accessing any of this money would be an absolute last resort and I admire her for this because I think the same with my own investments. That investment may as well not even exist for her because it's not entering her thinking at the moment. They began it as a long-term investment and that is where it will stay. And to succeed at investment, if you dance in and out of the market, you are 100% likely to lose out over the long term. So although they have a few fires burning here in Auckland, they can be managed without using the money or by drawing out of their Australian super schemes. So what with everything going on at the moment, I asked her if she could retain all of the knowledge that she has today regarding money and could go back to her 15-year-old self and start again, what would she do? She said she wouldn't change much and is so glad she spent money on things when she was young that she really valued, like saving up for her first car and travelling and living overseas. She would say to her younger self, start saving more earlier, but she was still happy that she started investing when age 25 because any earlier and she probably would have stuffed it all up. She would say to herself, having cash and savings is important because that lets you make the most of opportunities. So save that bit extra when you can. And just finally, before I wrap up, I asked her if she had any podcast or website recommendations, and she would recommend that we give the Tim Ferriss podcast a listen. And she said, go back to his first couple of years where he interviewed some amazing people and shared their stories. Plus, she loves what Ali Evest do, an investing platform created by women for women. She said their newsletters and socials are worth following. So righto, before I wrap up, I have another quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting The Happy Saver. They make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. So to kick off your investing journey, head over to hatch.as forward slash The Happy Saver Start Investing. Catherine is an extremely upbeat person and despite the current strife they find themselves in with an imminent drop to one income, She has the ability to dampen out any fires they are currently facing with detailed budgeting, yet still stick to their financial plan for the years ahead. And that's quite a skill given that their current situation would have many reaching for a break in mortgage payments, a hardship withdrawal from their retirement fund, and a sell-off of their share portfolios. Given her background in the financial services industry, I think that's the reason she is comfortable with more risk than most. As she can see this unique period in time for what it is, a blip on a graph, a moment in time that will, given time, pass. Yes, she has taken on more debt than I could ever stomach, and perhaps more than her own financial advisor is strictly comfortable with, but remarkably, she is still okay with this. Now these are strange times indeed, and who could have guessed that our airline industry would grind to a halt, leaving a very sought-after and high-paying occupation like being an airline pilot high and dry for the time being. Talk about being thrown a curveball. That's a massive thing to get your head around and they have the coming months to think through what career might be next for Luke as he waits this out or completely pivots into something new and enters into a whole new chapter in his career. I think this is definitely one couple I'll be seeking an update from in a future podcast. So to Catherine and Luke, thanks so much for sharing your journey with money with us. I wish you both well and I hope that those numbers and scenarios that you keep plugging into your spreadsheet 
help you through this current turbulent patch and that together you keep your hopes high and your optimism intact too. All the very best guys. So that's all from me this week. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com and I would love it if you could leave me a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.